Welcome to the New American Baccalaureate podcast. You are in for a treat with this installment. You're here with James Anderson, that's me, and my co-host. Eli Kramer. And we have uh, a guest co-host, Frank, who is a high school history teacher in Southern California. Frank, you there? Yes, hello there. And we are going to be interviewing Professor Richard Wolf, who is a professor of economics, a professor emeritus at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and taught uh, economics for decades, is a product of the Ivy League, and is a heterodox Marxian economist, and is a co-founder of the Democracy at Work social movement organization for economic justice, and he works diligently uh, to provide a Marxian systemic critique of capitalism and promote uh, a worker cooperative type economy. And uh, I hope you enjoy the discussion that we have with him. All right, we're on the NEB podcast with uh, Professor Wolf. Professor Wolf, thank you so much for having us. Glad, glad to be here and glad to be doing this. Uh, great. So today we uh, wanted to talk to you about both the kind of macroeconomic situation you see in front of us and in particular how it faces higher education. Uh, so with that, I'll hand it off to James Anderson to, to start our questions for you. Uh, Professor Wolf, I wondered if you could tell us in what ways you see the COVID-19 pandemic transforming this you know, late stage capitalism or maybe uh, thinking more individually in terms of nation states, how it's transforming different uh, late capitalist market economies? Well, it's a slightly different question. L- let me focus on the United States since I know that best and it probably is of broadest interest. Um, I think this, the way to understand this from a macroeconomic perspective is that we've never quite had what is a classic capitalist uh, meltdown, a a depression. Uh, The worst one was in the 1930s. We had a real bad one in 2008 and 9, and now we've got a doozy uh, already not bigger than the Great Recession and not yet as big as the Great Depression, but uh, possibly getting to that point. And what makes it unique is that it is happening at the same time that we have a global viral pandemic, which is both was both the trigger for the collapse, but also makes the collapse worse. Um, And that means that there's twice as much difficulty um, facing it. Number one, number two, It is really important, if you're interested in the relationship uh, between the pandemic and the macroeconomic meltdown or crash, uh, that it be understood that the virus was a trigger, no more than that. Just like in 2008 and 9, the trigger was defaulting mortgages, or that the, uh, the crash in early 2000 was triggered by absurdly high dot-com stock prices. A healthy market has gotten through dozens of overpriced stock situations in 2000. A healthy capitalism will get through spates when people can't pay mortgages, 
There's nothing new about that. And we have had viral attacks, some worse than the one we're going through, such as 1918, some not as bad, like the MERS or the SARS or the Ebola uh, of a few years ago. Basically, what, what is happening now is a powerful illustration to everyone who isn't ideologically blinded that capitalism doesn't work, that what, did, what capitalism did here was build society to a level of vulnerability that it could not prepare for, it did not cope with um, a virus, an important and a dangerous one, but the failure is, is a problem of capitalism. To make it very concrete, here in the United States, we have the, the labor power, we have the tools, the equipment, the raw materials, the factories, everything, to produce no limit uh, tests, masks, gloves, beds, gowns, hospitals, you name it. And the reason those weren't produced is that it isn't profitable to do so. The companies that could have, and indeed some of them are doing it now, the companies that could have didn't. They didn't want to spend the money to produce something they might not be able to sell, and they certainly weren't going to make a profit producing masks, storing them in warehouses, uh, spread across the country so that the stockpiles would be uh, where they were needed to be. The private sector failed to do what was necessary to prepare for the kind of viral pandemic we have had literally dozens of times over the last century. Worse still, the government in this country, having bought the Kool-Aid that if something is profitable, well, then it's socially useful, and the corollary, if something isn't profitable, it's probably not worth producing. That mistake meant that the government, instead of going in and compensating for the failure of private capitalism, to produce and stockpile became instead complicit. It didn't do the buying of the goods. It didn't do the stockpiling either. So you're seeing here a colossal failure exercise exposed to everybody who isn't ideologically blinded, who then now has to ask himself or herself, uh, we are unsafe in the most basic way human beings can be. Their lives are threatened uh, by a system that, that fails to prepare for it. Uh, what else are we suffering? What, what is the danger to the climate? What is the condition of our housing? What is the condition of our mass transit? And so on. Because many of these basic needs, like the need for public health, cannot be secured in a capitalist system, because for capitalists, as they themselves will tell you, profit is the bottom line. Profit maximization is the rationale. It's the metric by which the winners who are profitable are rewarded, and the losers who aren't are, uh, lose their jobs. So you have a system that can't produce the basic needs of society, and I think the solution to that in the past is the one we'll have now. Namely, this system's time to go has arrived.
And how do you see those failures? You were giving a few examples of from everything from public transit to the failures in public health that this kind of Pandora's box has opened up. Uh, uh, how do you see that extending the, the failures of capitalism to the current uh, state of higher education and the future of higher education? In other words, how is it going well, to I mean, transform the, higher education? I think in a, in a whole host of ways. Uh, it starts with the fact, since I, I'm a professor myself and I, I teach in a university, um, this system closed down. It, it doesn't function. My, my university, like I assume all of yours, is shut. Uh, it isn't doing what it was set up to do. And while there might be, and I underscore the word might, there might be some ways to utilize uh, social media and distance learning and all of that apparatus. Uh, that isn't being done now. That wasn't planned for. Um, and as a consequence, there is a staggering interruption in education. I mean, let me give you a very concrete example. Uh, and let's do it for the whole educational system, not just higher ed, but all of it. You have millions, and I mean millions, of unemployed teachers at this point at various levels. Hmm. We could have been, we should have been set up in advance, but certainly once the, the virus was in play, say in February, with a system where we are assigned to particular students with whom we can work, let's say every day an hour or every day an hour and a half, uh, in the form of, of higher education, or for that matter, lower education, that usually goes by the name tutorial, set up a system. There are millions of us who could do that. Each of us could do it with, I don't know, 10 students a week, uh, two hours each, or something like that, uh, where we could continue the intimacy, the question and answer, whether it's a Socratic method or any other method of teaching, we could have been continuously engaged in the process and a handful of students could have done it. If you brought professors out of retirement, if you finally gave adjuncts the kind of recognition uh, that they deserve, if you brought people who had all kinds of knowledge but aren't in uh, education as their full-time activity, you could have developed a spectacular innovative educational program with everybody at a safe distance with, from the next person so there isn't the, the, the pandemic danger of spreading an infection. Uh, none of that was done. So it seems to me the kinds of collapse I described in the face of a health uh, attack has now been compounded by this system's failure uh, to establish procedures and understandings for, for, the, for the whole school system in the country and all the people who could have and should have uh, benefited from possibilities under these circumstances that are in some educational ways actually better than the normal uh, pre-pandemic uh, systems of education. Um, in my university, in the University of Massachusetts, for example, or now where I teach at a new school university, uh, we throw uh, two, three, four hundred people into a room. Obviously, we don't do that anymore, but it's a very arguable question whether that kind of education uh, couldn't be much improved upon if you gave me, as a teacher, 
one or two students every other hour during, you know, 10 hours a week or 15 or whatever the number is, and during a, a, a crisis like this, one could ask professors to perhaps do a bit more than they normally do since everybody else is suffering. Uh, I think we've missed a fantastic opportunity because of the failure of this system to act. And again, I, I hate to be beating the same drum all the time, but so many of the universities that I've been associated with here in the United States in my life are now captured by the same bean counter profit maximization models and, 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 and programs that they too could not in their own minds justify uh, setting up the kinds of infrastructure, uh, backup plans that could have made this experience positive for higher education rather than simply and bluntly shutting it down. Professor Wolf, you're an historian, and if listeners you know, weren't familiar with your biography prior to this, they probably gleaned as much just listening to what you've already shared. Now, you mentioned those past viral outbreaks, as well as the repeated failures of capitalism, which should be legend by now. Uh, so I'm wondering what lessons you think we can learn from history as we, as we uh, try to navigate the crisis, as far as you know, academics are concerned, but also for those outside academia as well. Well, I think, again, uh, let me stress what I have said before. I'm a critic of capitalism. I've been a critic of capitalism most of my adult life. Uh, before this pandemic had occurred, uh, I was feeling, particularly in the last six or seven years, uh, that predictions I had made about the difficulties capitalism would encounter, uh, which I think I half hoped would never show up. I'd be much happier if I said, well, I was wrong in this way and that way. Uh, but now I'm in the completely opposite situation of the classic person, you know, who, who doesn't want to tell you that he told you so, and thereby, of course, tells you. Uh, this is a system that doesn't work anymore. And I think what you're seeing are stunning illustrations, one upon the next upon the next. I mean, let me, let me drive it home as best I can. Over the next several weeks... This capitalist system is going to confront the working class of the Western world and beyond, but here in the United States for sure, with an unspeakable choice, a choice no working class in modern times has been confronted with this bluntly. Basically, you're going to be told, and it's already starting, you will either suffer economically on top of the suffering you've already had, that is the unemployment you've suffered, the loss of job you've suffered, the, the shaky condition of your employer that uh, your anxiety ridden about, the level of debts that are higher than they've ever been and that give you anxiety. On top of all of that, we're going to worsen your economic condition unless you come back to work and thereby risk your life and those of the people you will infect if you pick up a disease. We're being told this by a government and by uh, CEOs who have yet to demonstrate 
that they're willing to spend anything like the amounts of money out of their profits to even begin to make the workplace safe. I mean, they just haven't done it. Some of them have, have made little cosmetic efforts. You have to test everybody, not just once, but in an ongoing way. The fact that you didn't test for the coronavirus on Thursday doesn't mean you didn't pick it up over the subsequent weekend. You're going to have to be tested again. There has to be a whole regime of ongoing testing. There have to be masks and gowns and all the rest of this stuff. Cleaning has to take on a whole new meaning. Disinfecting of every workplace at the end of every day. The, these kinds of uh, situations, they are an enormous investment, costing huge amounts of money, and there is virtually no corporation has even undertaken the planning necessary to do that. Give you an example. Amazon has hired hundreds of thousands of people because they're making money hand over fist since everybody orders because you can't go to a store. But the money they spent to hire those people is profitable because of the shipments they're doing. What they didn't do is massively transform the warehouses and everything else in which this mass of people are now congregating in extraordinarily unsafe circumstances, which have been so severe that you have pockets of Amazon workers who are already on strike. This demand to go back to work, which is going to reach a crescendo literally between now uh, and the next three or four weeks, um, is confronting the working class um, with, a, with an unspeakable choice. I expect I may be surprised, of course, but I expect a large, significant number of workers will not go back, and that will constitute, historically, a general strike. Not one organized by the labor movement and the left, which has been the tradition of general strikes, but for all that, probably more effective because it is driven by the fear of death. And you're going to see all kinds of political, ideological, cultural ramifications exploding out of a society that has a pandemic, which it has not got under control, and an economic crash, and now an impossible demand on the working class, and now a general strike looming. I mean, you would have to have... If you saw this in a piece of theater six months ago, you would have shaken your head and said that the playwright had, you know, lost it, had gone over the deep end, because this is just unthinkable, uh, unimaginable. Let me give you a footnote. I did some research to try to answer this wonderful, mysterious question. Why are we not testing people in the United States? Which led me to the question, well, how many people have been tested. Okay, the answer based on the Centers for Disease Control, Johns Hopkins University, and two or three other institutions that follow this goes something like this. We have probably not in, uh, tested at this point 
more than one million people. This is in a country of 325 million people. The current testing rate is estimated to be about 146,000 tests per week, excuse me, per day. What that means is you could, if you keep it up, and that's not clear that we can, but if you keep it up, you will get to uh, a million per week. That means in 52 weeks or a year, you'll have 52 million in a population of three. We don't even know where the virus is. We don't know where it's strong, where it's weak, where it's growing, where it's shrinking. We haven't done the work. We have millions of people unemployed now. I think the estimates are in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 million uh, people unemployed over the last month. Are they being mobilized in a great program of government jobs to test everybody? Not at all. Are they being mobilized in an enormous program of tutorials in colleges and universities and, and elementary schools? Not at all. Are they being mobilized to educate people on how to clean and disinfect? Are they being mobilized to be cleaners and disinfectors on the mask? I mean, you know the game I'm playing with you. The answer to all these questions is, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing. I think you can't keep doing this, I hope, without the lesson being learned from this pandemic and this economic breakdown that this system is busted. And no amount of blaming Mr. Trump, and I don't like him any better than I assume most of you don't, uh, this is not Mr. Plump. He hasn't got the power to do all of this. He's limp. He's lame. He hasn't made much of a difference. He's done too little, and he's done it too late. But you cannot, even if you want to fall in love with Joe Biden, and if you do, I, I feel for you. Uh, but even if you do, you this is a systemic problem, and that is being exposed slowly, given the ideology of this country, but very steadily. And I am, I am feeling the rate of change in this country, ideologically, politically, is extraordinary right now, and it isn't going to the right. And, and so um, given this uh, situation where on one hand, there's the utter failure of the current system to properly respond, and in the other, all the makings of what you're calling a potential general strike. What opportunities do we as educators, teachers, scholars, everyday people trying to deal with this have, uh, like, uh, have in helping to make change or uh, maybe a better way of putting it? What opportunities, uh, in spite of these challengers, are available that we should be trying to utilize in the coming weeks and months ahead of us? Hmm. Okay, well, I mean, you are as we used to say, you are throwing me very gentle softballs, and I am now in a position where I hope to knock it out of the park, etc. So let me, let me try to, 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 to respond uh, in terms of what we can do. In revolutionary situations, which is what is slowly maturing here, at least in terms of the historical parallels one can look at, um, what you usually have are masses of people who have had it with the existing system. 
you do not have, you didn't have it in the American Revolution, you didn't have it in the French or the Russian. You didn't have a clear idea on the part of most people where to go, what to do next, what alternative system should be put in place. You just had a refusal to tolerate the existing one anymore, a loss of confidence that that system can be reformed, a loss of confidence that the people in charge have any clue uh, as to what to do. When you have that kind of set of circumstances, you get what, uh, what can be at least not altogether romantically uh, called a revolutionary situation. That is what's building. The lack is, we don't need academics to tell us that the system is busted. I mean, people figure that out. And we don't need academics particularly uh, to tell us the details. That's helpful, but it's not crucial. What we do need the academics for is to give some direction, some idea of what are the sorts of things that could be considered, that should be considered, that should, should be problems. They criticize a lot of things, but when you come to the economic system, they punt. They don't do anything. They treat the economic system, namely capitalism, as if somehow it, it's better than sliced bread. It's the best thing since sliced bread. And nobody with a, with a half a brain would think of going beyond it. And if you do, it's either because you're ignorant about capitalism's virtues or else you're perverse, you're evil, you have some ulterior motive that drives you. The result, and I, by the way, I don't just mean that about people outside of economics. I mean it especially about my colleagues in the field of economics who are often very smart people, very committed people, good teachers, nice folks, all that. But when it comes to criticizing capitalism, let me put it as nicely as I can. They have been out of the habit so long, they don't know where to start. They can fix this or that problem. They can identify this or that issue and do research, often good research. But when it comes to the problem of putting it together and saying, asking the question, is this a systemic problem? And then if the answer can be yes, well then what would be a systemic change that could solve these problems, they're useless. And part of the reason they're useless has been the utter exclusion of systemically critical thinking um, in the economics profession and in all of the rest of you in other professions that take clues from economics, which is certainly uh, political science, sociology, history, and, and quite a few others. So here's the problem. There is a literature that is a systematic and a systemic critique of capitalism and a systematic exploration of the alternatives. Either you, ex you explore that literature, you learn it, and that, I, that includes all kinds of criticisms that you can and should make of it in order to make it better, or you don't. The profession of economics and those who are derivative more or less from it, other disciplines, they haven't done that work. 
they don't even know what the and of course I'm talking here about the Marxian tradition since Marx is the Marx is to the critique of capitalism what Adam Smith and David Ricardo were uh, and others but particularly them in establishing the, the positive notions of economics um, Marx is the founder of this there have been hundreds and thousands of Marxists since who have developed often very critically, this or that aspect of his systemic critique, but it's the obvious logical starting point. You're not going to get beyond it unless you work your way through it. The, 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 the grandiose and, and, and casual dismissal of the Marxian tradition, it's embarrassing when I encounter it among my colleagues, which I do every day. It, it's silly. It's childish. We haven't refused to engage Marxism for the last 70 years because we're, we're smarter than that or we've gone beyond it. We're just afraid. We're afraid for our careers. We're afraid for our reputations. We're afraid that journals won't publish our articles and uh, publishers will not do our books. Blah, blah, blah. It, it's terrible to watch. It has done its job. It has made this country critical about almost everything except capitalism, which gets a free pass. And then we are all supposed to not notice that whatever it is that gets a free pass from criticism is something that is then able to indulge its worst dimensions because it's not open to the criticism that would otherwise pinpoint attention on them and therefore stimulate the, the improvements beyond them. And so we're stuck with a capitalism now showing itself to be stupefyingly incompetent and inefficient. By the way, we economists love that phrase, efficiency. I hope most of you, especially if you're not economists, have learned long ago to give that the minimum of attention that it deserves. But efficiency, let me just mention to you, is this notion that you can somehow identify and measure all the negative consequences of any act, prospective act, and you can compare them to all the positive ones. And if the positive ones are greater in, in quantity than the negative, well, then it's efficient to do the act. And if the opposite holds, well, then it's inefficient to do the act. Well, here's a little number for you to think about as I try to shake people out of their torpor. The amount of wealth lost in the last month by U.S. capitalism is a thousand times greater than the amount of wealth it would have been necessary to put to work to produce the tests and the masks and the gowns and the beds and the hospitals uh, to prepare for this pandemic. Not preparing which was a capitalist decision made by profit-driven capitalists, was monumentally inefficient, as so many of the decisions made by profit-maximizing capitalists have always been. But to say that and to teach it to people and then to begin to ask and answer the question, which, by the way, Marxists have already done a good bit of work, some of that work is crappy and has to be improved upon. Criticism is always in order. But again, they've done some work. It's a good place to start. Uh, 
and let's do that. Let's talk about what would happen, for example, if an enterprise, a factory, an office, a store, an enterprise, were to be not capitalist, that is, not a small group of people at the top who make all the decisions, a board of directors, a senior corporate executives, a major shareholders, and that's usually the group that does it. Uh, instead of them making the decisions, the decisions in the enterprise are made democratically, one person, one vote, throughout the enterprise. The, the sweeper, the machine worker, uh, the supervisor, all of them. And now let's suppose not only we did it that way, but that we would allow for there to be, here we go now, multiple bottom lines, not just profit. Let profit be there. It's one of the things we want to take into account in this business, but it's not the only one. Here's another one. We want to free women from being locked at home as mothers and childcare. We want to have a child, a daycare center at the factory so no one is presented, uh, prevented from taking a job here. Or we want to make sure that the air is clean and, the, and if that impedes on the profit, okay, we have multiple different objectives. We don't have one bottom line, profit. We have multiple bottom lines. All of this is perfectly logical. If you like, since I'm a mathematician by origin, I can do it all for you with, with higher mathematics. These are already partially worked out alternatives to capitalism. And all I would say is one of the great things the academic community could do is to reintroduce to the American uh, population, starting with the students, systematic thinking, systematic criticism, criticism that is of not only of the education system and the transport system, but first and foremost of the economic system in terms of, of posing honestly and without fear a simple question. Can we do better than capitalism? Now, young men and women, let's go. Let's see what kind of answers we can come up with. We won't be intimidated. We won't be frightened. We won't be made to fear for our uh, academic positions. This is a reasonable question for reasonable people to go to work on, and it could just save our lives. Professor Wolf. <clears throat> we want to be mindful of your time, so maybe just one more question and then we'll wrap things up. Uh, okay. But kind of uh, in line with what you were just discussing, I, I wonder what do you see as the best way to introduce a systemic critique, a Marxian analysis to students? We have a, a special guest on uh, today, Frank, who's a friend of mine who teaches high school in Southern California. And Eli and, and I, of course, and as well as you, Professor Wolf, have uh, taught undergrads, and I'm sure you've taught grad students too. And so, uh, what do you see as the the best way to introduce that kind of critique to students to make it accessible? Uh, and then, uh, how can how, like how can academics continue to explore some of the underexplored areas and apply uh, the Marxist analysis in ways that might you know, throw light on the current crisis and allow us to, you know, uh, promote that kind of institutional and systemic transformation that you've been talking about? 
Okay, the way I would answer that is, uh, and bear with me if it sounds a little simplistic when I start. Um, I like to go into high schools. I do it fairly often. Uh, I am very persuaded that high school is a very important time in people's lives when they are open to ideas that they weren't before for other reasons, and they probably won't be much longer uh, because of the sad condition of higher education. But in any case, uh, I appreciate that there's someone with that perspective uh, participating in all of this. Here's my experience, and I've tried to do this wherever I've taught. You have to excite students. There's good reasons and bad reasons. They are young. They have a lot of energy. They want to make the world a better place. Most of them really do. And it's exciting for them if you give them a sense that it's possible to make the world a better place. They do not have to resign themselves to the lives they see at home with their parents or around them in the community, that they are more noble, more romantic, more exciting uh, ways of conceiving of a life uh, that they're thinking about. And so for me, I would approach teaching systemic criticism by starting along two tracks. The first, take institutions that the young people are already at least a little bit familiar with and teach them how they could be otherwise, how they don't have to be the way the students now see and experience them. Whether that's in a classroom setting, it doesn't have to be the teacher telling you what to do and you then regurgitating it on the homework. There are other ways of doing this that might be better. And then graduate from that to talk about the workplace. Why do we have autocracy in the workplace? Why is there a tiny group of people at the top of virtually every store, office, factory, uh, telling everybody else what to do? Young people, particularly if they're excited about democracy and sharing and horizontal distributions of power and making change, this is an exciting idea that the whole workplace could be different. You don't have to go to work and be a drone who is told by other people what to do. You could be a person in the group that tells everybody. In fact, everybody could have two job descriptions, their particular function in the division of labor and their equal participation in running and designing and changing and directing the whole enterprise, tapping into all kinds of skills and capabilities that go beyond that specific little task that is part of your job description. You open up possibilities uh, for people learning and the thing becomes much more exciting. And then you can go on and say, well, gee, suppose everybody has decision-making power in an enterprise then we can't have the kind of education system we were used to. One, Harvard and all of that for the people at the top, and then uh, state universities for those in the middle, and community colleges for those at the bottom of the heap, 
or however you constitute it with neighborhoods and in public schools and, and high function, low function, uh, high quality, local, all of that. You could throw that into question. You could explain that there are other models. You could teach that there are worker co-ops all over the world, including in the United States, and by the way, particularly in California, uh, where they're more developed than in most of the United States. Um, and, and you can even see them. And those folks will give you a tour, and it'll blow students' minds. I've done it half a dozen times. I've even taken people to Mondragon in Spain. That's a cathartic experience to sit down in a room with workers who have a kind of power and a sense of a feeling about their job that these young folks are absolutely unused to ever seeing, um, in which a, a foreman and a, and a, a floor sweeper uh, debate how to do something. It, it, it's, and, and it's done in English, or you can translate it. If you go to Mondragon, they'll do the translations for you. Um, I think not only not shying away, but leaping right in to the fact that the world could be organized otherwise, and that a new young generation is precisely the people who are now free to see it, and therefore free to begin to move forward towards it and not get stuck in the ruts that they see their own parents and their own uh, environment about. And the only other thing I would say is the history part. I find students are mesmerized when I explain to them what was done in the Great Depression here in the United States, that the working class rose up, joined the two socialist parties and the one communist party in huge numbers, joined labor unions on a scale we've never seen in the history of the United States, neither before nor afterwards. And they confronted the government and they got all kinds of things, a minimum wage, unemployment compensation, the social security system, uh, 11 to 12 million federal jobs, and how that would transform this kind of co the country, and how that could happen again, and why the whole left wing and the union movement was crushed uh, once Roosevelt had died and the New Deal was over, and why we're living in the crushed remains um, of a system that ironically was saved from fascism in the 30s by the left, rewarded the left by destroying it after the 1945 period, and now, here's the irony, kind of wishes it had a stronger left because then we wouldn't be confronting Mr. Biden, we'd have Mr. Uh, Bernie Sanders instead. Well, on that point, it, you know, it strikes me that there's a kind of a, a full circle of leaning into the situation we're in, that it is revolutionary. And as much as there's tragedy and absolute failure, there's also a real opportunity to think things differently and to look at the yeah, concrete look, models we do have about how right. to do that. And let me underscore in case, you know, you've gotten some impression of me and my Apolo apologies for my flights of rhetoric, but the current situation really kind of brings it out of you, even if you didn't know you had it. Anyway, here's something that you might take some uh, comfort from. Uh, having been a critic of capitalism all my adult life, uh, having found Marx to be a wonderful and inspiring teacher, 
I have areas of disagreement, of course, and there are areas that Marxism either didn't do well or didn't do at all, and all of that is, is that's all correct. But I will never shy away from giving Mr. Marx the credit for having taught me a lot. Um, but here's the here's the thing I want to leave you with. Up until 2011, I would be invited. And I have, you know, these nice uh, elitist credentials from my schooling. And I know all those people. You know, that's the other thing. It's a very small circle. So my classmates at Yale were Janet Yellen and, and you know, all of that. Uh, and they know me. I know them. Um, here's, here's what I would tell you. Up until 2011, I would get an invitation to give a talk or to do some sort of radio or television interview. I would say once every two to three months, that was it. Okay, flash uh, fast forward to right now. I do four to five radio television interviews per day. And now sequestered in a tiny house, uh, we're set up here electronically so I can do it here. You, this conversation I'm having with you, is the fourth today that I've done. Wow. Um, the demand for the kinds of criticism you hear coming out of my mouth are greater than they have ever been in my life. I was born many years ago in the city of Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, I've lived here and worked in the United States all my life. I've never expected to see what I'm experiencing now. Uh, it is beyond the, the wildest imaginations uh, that I ever allowed myself. Uh, the audience for what I have to say is off the chart. The enthusiasm. It, it's, I do a weekly radio and television show. I'm continuing to do that. It goes out over free speech TV to 55 million homes. It's broadcast as a radio show on 100 stations across the country. I never dreamed any of this would happen in my lifetime. I won't deny to you I'm having the time of my life, but for those of you that find this kind of thinking congenial and interesting and worthwhile, I can now say something to you I could never say before. This country wants to hear from you. This country is open to what you have to say. Many of them very hungry to hear it, wanting the reinforcement of their own ideas, wanting to be given new ideas to chew on, horrified by the leadership of this country at this time, and not just at the top. Uh, the conditions are spectacular for us to make um, gains uh, of a sort, as I say, we never imagined before. I never allowed myself to imagine before, but now they're concretely available. And Professor Wolf, before we close out, for listeners who are interested in pursuing this further, who have listened to your rhetorical flourishes and are extremely impressed and find this analysis illuminating, where can they find you online? Very, very easy. Um, first of all, I am all over YouTube. If you go to YouTube and you just uh, YouTube slash 
democracy at work, you will, all one word, democracy at work, uh, you will get more video material than you will have any interest in pursuing. We also maintain uh, two websites. One is called democracyatwork.info. Again, one word, democracyatwork.info. You can go to my own website, rdwolf with two Fs, dot com. But we also maintain Facebook, Twitter, Instagram programs. Uh, we produce uh, half a dozen to a dozen tweets and memes per day on issues of the economy. Um, I used to do all this by myself. Uh, we are now an operation. We call ourselves Democracy at Work of uh, four full-time and two part-time people. And that's all because the demand for what we do, um, as I say, is literally overwhelming. I turned down three of every four invitations. I haven't gotten them now because you know, colleges, universities, trade unions, churches, they don't have events, as you all know, because of the social distancing we're practicing. But I have reason to expect that once this passes, assuming it does, that I will go back to doing a good bit of traveling. And while it is tiring and while it is sometimes exhausting, if you've been a critic and marginalized in American society, culturally and ideologically, for as many decades as I was, what you have now is so delicious, so inspiring, so energizing that uh, you just keep going like that proverbial uh, bunny that advertised the batteries. To our listeners and to Professor Wolf, I'd like to thank you for joining us for the New American Baccalaureate podcast. We really appreciate it. My pleasure, and thank you for doing it. That's part of the change in the culture that's going on. So I'm appreciative of you at least as much. Well, that was a fascinating interview, at least as far as I'm concerned. Eli, what are your thoughts? Uh, you know, I was struck by kind of two uh, uh, levels here uh, that I think were particularly most interesting for higher education. One is whether the macro level economic forces are coming to a head in some way with the general strike and what that means for educating and supporting people through a tremendous transition. Uh, and if it will happen the way he thinks it will. Um, and then on the other was a question, uh, a kind of micro level about teaching whatever happens and thinking about the ways in which we can change our, our, the local ways in which we live and work, particularly about educating people about how they could work and live differently with cooperative economies and businesses. Um, so I, I would be curious for both of your thoughts about the kind of, macro level historical trajectories and what that means for us in higher education and high school and on the micro level about teaching, especially with the idea of showing people, I think I was really struck by, uh, besides general points, I think we all agree with the more micro level hints he suggested about showing people different kinds of cooperatives and structures that really are concrete alternatives to the, the way we currently and usually live and work. As far as the, the macroeconomics go, his suggestion that there could be this inadvertent general strike of sorts, not organized by uh, labor necessarily, but 
uh, by, by, you know, unions and what have you, but instead just people refusing to go to work to put themselves in danger for capital. And we've already seen some of that, but as we were uh, discussing before we started recording, we've also seen some of the opposite, right? And it, it presents a, a really kind of difficult dilemma to unpack because you have folks who I just saw on social media today are protesting, uh, I believe in front of their employer, uh, saying, hey, put us back to work now. And that's understandable in a lot of respects, right? Because they need a paycheck, right? They have to pay rent, they have bills. Uh, then sometimes it's, you know, either go to work or starve. That's the situation that capitalism presents folks with, even during a pandemic. But yet that, you know, it, that is in stark contrast to the other impetus, which is to say, no, we're not going to go to work just so that you can make a profit putting ourselves in danger. Instead, we're going to put pressure on you to provide us what we need during this you know, period of crisis. And so I think there's a, there's a tension there and getting folks to understand that their, uh, you know, that their, the, their material needs might be met through these alternative means seems like a really important task. I'm going to turn over to Frank in just a sec, but I just wanted to quickly add here that uh, at least for me, there's, again, I'm, I'm in a Tuesday uh, 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 kind of sensibility. Uh, there's two uh, angles on this I see. One is just what you talked about. Same thing with Southern Italy and Europe, where I am right now. Uh, I'm currently in Poland, but uh, I, I read closely what's happening in the EU broadly. Southern Italy, which is much poorer than the Northern region that was hardest hit, is desperate. Uh, many people are desperate to go back to work for the simple reason of really just food on the table, even more than rent. I think the, the, the food and basic necessity question is dealing extremely grim to people. And people are all aware of the risk. It's not a kind of denialism like we're seeing in the U.S. with the Proud Boys with their protests in front of hospitals. It's a pretty concrete just necessity. Well, I have two options. I potentially get sick from this disease and die, or I just go hungry right now. Um, and, the, and, the, and the, especially in the uh, in other countries that are not as uh, not at the kind of top of the late capitalist food chain, I worry that that will be an increasingly hard decision. Uh, mm -hmm. On the other end, uh, like our colleague Glenn Wax has been harping, I see already economies dramatically shifting. The amount of money that governments are pouring into economies, even if it's for the ultra rich or whatever, is simply not the private. Uh, industry public relation that we grew up with, and especially if it continues, which I suspect it likely will in one way or another, the bridge between private capitalistic economy and uh, public systematic intervention uh, is going to increasingly blend into maybe a strange situation where governments feel obligated, in fact, to pay people to work, to keep the economy going in some fashion. Uh, Spain is, in fact, thinking of adding something like a universal basic income, and perhaps more extended than just the pandemic itself. And I is wonder, that, is that, Eli, is that Spain and Italy? Uh, Spain, just Spain right now, as far as I know. Uh, there's okay. countries like Denmark, uh, you know, Canada's another uh, in the developed world that are, are, are doing several months instead of just the, you know, the lame one month U.S. response. Right, um, yeah. But as this develops out to, I don't know if it's going to keep up late capitalism or if it's just 
uh, going to become something else. I already see um, transformation happening one way or another, but I don't know what the end of the tunnel looks like. I don't know if it's a general strike and the collapse of capitalism and we, get, we have opportunity for cooperatives or some crazy authoritarian blended model or something else. I don't think the contradictions we're seeing lead, lead easily necessarily to a better or worse. I actually think the situation is completely uncertain. I'm going to be frank with, you know, maybe some rough guesswork of grim things for sure as the transition happens. But beyond that, I think there's strange possibilities ahead. Um, but I, I wanted to make sure we got Frank in here. And especially as a high school teacher, I was, I was particularly uh, curious for his thoughts about uh, Professor Wolf's suggestions about how we bring questions about these changes into the classroom and what you were taking away from that. Sure. Um, I don't have too much to say on the macro side, except that this is all going to hinge on how the virus behaves. If this doesn't, if the numbers go down as far as the cases and, and uh, the individuals being tested, uh, if it if this kind of blows over quicker than we think it will, then I assume there won't be many changes, macro speaking. But um, as far as how to uh, incorporate this time into uh, what it's like as being a high school teacher, I, I definitely feel like Wolf uh, had some great things to say regarding kind of opening up the minds in a general way to students not taking institutions for granted, which we, which, we do, at least at the district that I work at, at least some of us do, where we sort of begin by having uh, students take, take a look at, um, you know, concepts like democracy and seeing what the alternatives are and, and how, um, how experiments with, with different systems have gone in the past. But just going a little bit deeper as far as employment goes, which, is, which would be really important. And, and I don't do too often uh, at this point, given that I only um, have been teaching U.S. history. So on the econ side, I, I think you'd, the, the best insight I've gotten from Wolf is to have students sort of start getting a, a better idea of what it would be like to take on a secondary role as, a, as an employee um, in uh, kind of having a bit more say in how their their job goes as far as what uh, how things are, are dealt with um, and how decisions are made at the the particular job that they have but those are the, the main insights is that basically he, he emphasized his emphasis on the fact that young people these days do want to make a big impact which I've heard a lot is it, it's kind of a stereotype of, of today's youth um, I don't know how legitimate of a stereotype that is, but I do think a lot of uh, individuals at that age do want to make an impact. So that would kind of be a, a nice um, trait for students to have these days to, to be able to bring about new altern alternatives that Wolf uh, spoke about in the, in the interview. I also thought he had a nice touch of discussing, you know, the concrete models that are currently at, out there, whether it's worker cooperatives in Spain or in California. Uh, you know, it struck me that the, instead of just having an abstract conversation, which I think especially scholars in higher education tend to with their students, how can you change capitalism? Whatever the mm -hmm. hell that means. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, there's something really valuable about looking about like, well, what would it look like if you started a business that was worked on a cooperative model? Here's a few. Here's ones that have happened historically. Here's the kinds of challenges they face. How, what, are, what would you like to make? How can we help you think about building that? Those are the kind of questions that seem immediate, concrete, and actually empowering for people. As they, they, we, we 
work through an extremely uncertain and volatile situation. And I, I tend to agree with that. Something that just occurred to me is uh, framing some of these issues in terms of the Gramscian idea of hegemony. Uh, and you know, prior to the pandemic, you had media and cultural studies scholars who would talk repeatedly, repeatedly about the crisis of hegemony that we're in, and you know that that there's a breakdown in the historically and culturally generated consensus for the status quo, for the established order, for capitalism, uh, and what have you. Uh, but I think that's really come to a fore now. Like the cracks have been uh, visibilized in a way that they maybe were not previously. And, and, and I think the kind of counter hegemony that points to and really stresses those concrete examples right, as alternatives is what might be needed to, to break through uh, that, that barrier and uh, that's keeping some folks from maybe um, looking beyond what capitalism has to offer and being able to you know, truly address some of the underlying issues of this uh, current um, corona, novel coronavirus era that we find ourselves in. It reminds me of the, actually, he is a kind of post-Marxist scholar, Eric Olin Wright, with his book, Real Utopias. Mm, yeah. And one of his strong convictions was always the actual models of doing things differently and showing how you can, and as them as actually models about how you can transition from here to something else are really critical in societal transformation. I, I definitely think that, that conversation struck that same chord with me, that those really practical, concrete, especially as people are just wondering what kind of job will be out there for me in the future, what can I do in a volatile situation, what ways should we be hunkering down, I think those will be more and more valuable. Um, I want what's to, really oh, sorry, sorry, just real quick, I just said what's really fascinating is thinking about how, as educators, we might be able to introduce some of those uh, democratic decision-making practices, those cooperative practices into the classroom or into our own institutions to try to transform them as well, if only as kind of a uh, way to prefigure what could provide, you know, greater systemic transformation, trying to do it within the academy where we, you know, have a little bit of leverage. I think it speaks to, maybe we're just going to the areas we always like, the UN prefigurative politics me on utopian practices. So Something coming to some full circle here. Um, yep. Any final thoughts from you two that strike you about the interview before we close out today? Uh, not for me, except that <clears throat> going back to these concrete examples, I think introducing these examples to students at the age that, that I do, uh, you know, 10th, 11th, and 12th graders, I think would be a great time to do so because I believe they're all, most, most students are uh, probably uh, regard these sort of alternatives uh, in a dismissive way right out of the gate. And so by kind of, you know, planting, you know, seeds at this time is probably a good idea so that they have more, a, a fuller picture of what these types of alternatives literally look like to, you know, maybe giving them an introduction to Mondragon and how that, how that company has been, um, how that company runs by doing that. I think it'll, it'll allow for them to have a more full picture when they get to higher ed and, and therefore can, can grapple with those, those topics in, in, in a much better way. Yeah, it sounds like we have this vision of showing them the models and maybe even bringing it into the classroom. And I, I certainly agree. I think 
if I were going to envision this, it would be from high school through especially the first two years of college, what's now considered a general education, which is, of course, what the new American baccalaureate is about. Uh, the only thing, oh, did you have something to add, Eli? No, no, keep, go ahead. My, my only final thoughts were along the lines of, uh, you know, this is kind of, if we're going to be candid about it, a little bit of a do-it-yourself project that we have going on, obviously supported by the NAB, but we don't have expertise in podcast making or in audio editing or in, and we don't have necessarily relationships with people, pre-existing relationships with people like Richard Wolf. We're not that awesome, but yet we're, you know, making an effort to make it happen and to give folks like Wolf, who has this different kind of systemic critique and ideas about alternatives, giving him a, a platform. And I think a lot of people have that opportunity now. Uh, and I would just encourage them not to be uh, too reluctant to engage because of concerns about, you know, a lack of expertise or a lack of ability. You know, I, I think, you know, that can come through formal education and it should, but there's also this kind of informal education, but Eli knows the, the term that I tend to use, public pedagogy, right, that's just as in many cases, just as important. And it's something that I, I would encourage folks to uh, engage in and not and to feel free to experiment, especially now, right? I think that's, that's definitely called for and now's an opportune time. And to feel free to kind of create their own content where they're exploring similar ideas, grappling with them, and also, you know, paying attention to you know, the concrete everyday things that are going on, the ways that, you know, people are doing things otherwise. And that, that type of learning and pedagogy will, will only increase. I'm fairly certain we'll all agree to that, given the shortcomings of media these days and the lack of trust I think a lot of people have with, with mainstream media. And instead of focusing on what the talking head is saying in CNN right now, they can go to you know, numerous podcasts where people are actually conversing, you know, on, on topics uh, in a sort of free form, spontaneous way, which can be, um, which is, I think, uh, <clears throat> really sought after these days. And we will continue to do that at the New American Baccalaureate podcast. We'd like to thank you for listening in. Tune in as we continue to have discussions through the pandemic and through ways to accelerate change that's meaningful in both uh, the liberal arts, in residential colleges, in higher education more broadly, and in our communities and world. Uh, so thank you again, and we hope to tune in with you next week. <laughs>